Welcome back to episode 7 of the Pulsock Podcast. I'm Jerome Devitt. This week's episode is a very special one, with a very specific purpose, which I hope will make sense to the young adults listening as it unfolds. It has lofty goals, which I hope will at least be partially attained. You're going to need to listen closely and attentively to this one. I hope that the fact that it was recorded in my own bustling school, which can be proven by the sound of school bells in the background at a few points, won't detract from the valuable insights that Colm O'Gorman of Amnesty International shared with me when he came to visit our school, King's Hospital, at the LGBT Week last year. Nominally, the title of this episode indicates that it focuses on NGOs, non-governmental organisations and activism. But what I realised both when conducting the original interview and which was reinforced to me as I edited the episode, is that in many ways it's an excellent example of the very thing that the subject is designed to do, and which often the students who have been conditioned to see education in a very linear way really struggle with. The concept of how many of the issues we examine are interdependent and multifaceted, in other words, have many moving parts, all of which are crucial to understanding the complex world around us. So when you hear this conversation jump from history, to the universality of human rights, to activism, to the role of the media, to clerical child abuse scandals that have rocked Ireland, to the treatment of refugees, and ultimately to Aung San Suu Kyi, and the treatment of the Rohingya population in Myanmar, don't think that that's because I have ADHD and can't focus on one specific topic. Rather, it's a deliberate attempt to offer you a glimpse into the world where issues can't be easily compartmentalised or pigeonholed into neat little boxes. It's the kind of conversation that actually demands something from the listener, and to which I hope you, as Paul Sock students, will give its due attention. As ever, there'll be a listen-along guide for the episode available at paulsockpodcast.com, but more importantly this week, I hope that students will see this episode and the episode notes that accompany it and indeed the conversation itself, as just a starting point, a springboard, from which you can take responsibility to actually move forward and interrogate the ideas discussed in a mature, informed and conscientious way. And as you listen, remember, I'm not requiring or even asking you to think a certain thing. I'm simply asking you to think. So let's dive in. I started off by asking Colm to give us a brief background to Amnesty International, how it was founded and what its goals are. Amnesty International was founded in 1961. There was a lawyer, Peter Benison, uh, who was living in London, based in London, who read a story about the um, imprisonment of people in Portugal under what was a dictatorship then for their opinions or beliefs. There's a myth that developed that it was two students who toasted freedom. Um, and that they were sent to prison afterwards. And actually, you know, when, we, when we've done the research in recent years, it turns out that it was probably people who were uh, members of a polit- particular political party, two young people who were members of a political party, possibly the Communist Party, who were imprisoned for their opposition to the regime at the time. And he was so offended about the idea that somebody could be put in prison just because of their beliefs, their political or other beliefs, that he called for an international campaign to free what he termed prisoners of conscience. 
And he wrote an article that appeared in the Observer newspaper in May of 1961. And the response to that article, not just in the UK but across the world, was so significant that it was decided to found a global organisation, Amnesty International. And that was founded in 1961. Seven... Uh, amnesty countries came together in 1962 to form the global amnesty movement and Amnesty Ireland was one of those seven founding national chapters or sections of the global movement. Been there from the start. Yeah, and, and since then the, the organisation is, is, is grounded in one simple idea that each of us, as ordinary people, whatever that means, have the power and the capacity to affect change. And that's something as simple as writing a letter to a, a, a brutal regime that's violating the rights of somebody else in another part of the world can make a difference. That if you or I sit down in our kitchen tonight and send a letter to a dictator somewhere who's imprisoning people who oppose him, that that letter can make a difference. And it really does. Um, particularly when it happens at a grand scale. Uh, and we've, we've seen it. We've seen people being released, death sentences being overturned, people being saved from torture or cruel and human degrading treatment people who abuse and violate the human rights of other people being held to account. We've managed to achieve huge legal change, both in terms of international law, regional law, the whole body of human rights law. We've been able to influence and shape that quite a lot over the years. And we've seen breakthrough in countless cases, and we see it, we see it every day, thankfully, I'm happy to say. Now, very often, pursuing that kind of change takes time. You have to be dogged, and you have to be determined, and you have to be you have to never give up until you until you secure the outcome uh, um, that you're trying to secure and that bit's important but it started off with one man believing that it was important to say something and to stand up and to do something and now here we are in, in 2018 and we're a movement of over 7 million people around the world who do just that on a regular basis Now, active citizenship is obviously a key component of the PulseOck course so I wanted to make sure to ask Colm how he had become involved in activism in the first place. Well, I mean, I was always interested in the world and interested in playing a part in it. I mean, I, I grew up in a, in a small, until I was 11, in a very small village in southeast uh, uh, Wexford. And I, I can remember, you know, even as a, a relatively young child, wanting to get involved in things that were happening in my community. I, I was interested in the world and in, in, in what might be going on in it, even in the world as it was to me then, which was this tiny, tiny place. And I was lucky that that was, that was in different ways fostered in me by my parents and by others in my life, I suppose. I mean, the first time I ever heard about Amnesty International was, was in, in first year of secondary school when I had a, a great maths teacher. Well, I don't know if he was a brilliant maths teacher, but he was a brilliant teacher called Colin Flynn, who there were two things going on at the time that he talked to us about. One was um, there was a proposal to build a nuclear power plant in Carnesore Point in Wexford, and the other was Amnesty International. And I remember when he talked about amnesty, it was the first time that I heard ideas being framed in a way that helped me to understand how I felt about the world. So I believed that justice mattered. I believed that if you saw something terrible happening, it was important to say something about that. I believed that it was really important to not be a bystander when you see something terrible happened, happening. Not because I thought I was better than anybody else, but just because something compelled me to do it. And I think that's at the heart of what it means to be human. I think at the heart of our humanity is to stand for love, for goodness, for justice. That humanity, if it's, if it's permitted to, to do so, always speaks in a way that's healthy and positive and that is, is geared towards or is arched towards finding an expression that's healthy and loving and constructive and great. Um, so when I heard that, 
been explained to me in, 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 in that way when I heard about this idea that we could make a difference in the life of somebody who was locked in a prison in some hellhole in another part of the world something just clicked for me so that was the first time that I heard it then much later on in my life I suppose uh, in my late 20s for lots of reasons I was having to confront some things that had happened to me when I was younger I'd been sexually abused as a, as a, a child and again as a teenager and in confronting that and going back and reporting what had happened to me because uh, it happened to be a, a Catholic priest who had abused me in, in my in my teens. Um, when I went back and reported that, within weeks it became clear that there was a bigger issue here, that he hadn't just abused me, that he'd abused an awful lot of other people. And then it became clear that lots of other people had known about that, so that the church had known about it, that maybe even some state agencies and authorities had known about it. And just as I said earlier on, I've never been able to be a bystander or to be silenced when I see something that's terribly wrong. In this case, it seemed obvious to me that we had to keep asking questions. So every time I found out something else about that, or I found out other people had been hurt, or that people might still be at danger, that, that, that agencies and people who were responsible for preventing this kind of harm hadn't just not prevented it, but they'd covered it up and permitted it, then to me it was really important to continue to ask questions and to pursue justice. So in my late 20s, that led to me then becoming much more I suppose, actively engaged in, in, in advocating for change. Um, I set up an organization, then I went on to train as a therapist because I was really interested in working clinically and therapeutically with people who had experienced trauma and sexual violence. And I set up an organization initially in London called One in Four to do that. And from that work, activism and advocacy became an important part of what we were doing. Because when you're engaging with people's experience of crime or harm or trauma, there are broader, not just individual responses, there are broader responses that are necessary. So that led to that. That led, then led to me campaigning here in Ireland for the first state inquiry into clerical sexual abuse, the Ferns inquiry, securing that, setting up one in four here. And suddenly my, my, my advocacy, my activism became a really core part of what I, what I did in terms of my work. And then that led to, to Amnesty. It's time for Quote of the Day. For today's short quote of the day section, I'll go with the evergreen, be the change you want to see in the world. In other words, if you see something that needs doing, needs fixing, don't passively sit back and expect others to do it for you. Get off your backside and start doing it yourself. Now, this quote is often attributed to Gandhi, the Indian activist who led the independence movement against British colonial rule in India. When you dig into it, and if the New York Times is to be believed, then you quickly discover that he never actually said those precise words, though he said other broadly similar things many times. I'll put a link to the New York Times article in the episode notes, and as always, let you decide for yourself. But I would ask you to consider whether, knowing that he didn't say that quote, devalues it in any meaningful way. And even if he didn't say it, I'll bet he wished he really did. Colin mentioned earlier in the discussion that, through Amnesty, he was involved in numerous national and international campaigns. I wanted to know which ones he was most proud of, and why. I'm happy to say that there are, there are, there are many. I mean, back in 1 and 4 in, in, in London in the very late 90s, early part of this century, I was involved in cases of, of uh, abuse within communities and families and institutions um, uh, on Merseyside in, in the UK that the authorities wouldn't look at and investigate where there was a real concern that it might still be happening and some of the, some of the people who'd been abused when they were children in that context came to me 
I was able to go and get the media very involved. We carried out a big undercover investigation for about nine months. That led to criminal prosecutions and sentences of 114 years in total for a, a range of offenders and real change happening at the, at the, at the kind of systemic level. And then with, with one and four here in Ireland, well, the Ferns Inquiry, the Dublin Inquiry, the Cloyne Inquiry, what happened with the Ryan Report, changes to law. You know, we managed to change law quite early on in, in, in 2005 off the back of the, the, uh, the, the Ferns Report and change policy and practice. So I'm, I'm really pleased that that worked out really effectively. And then in the amnesty context, nationally, marriage equality was a big focus for us. Uh, and it was something I'd been talking about for about seven or eight years before the, the referendum itself came about. And then most recently, the, the referendum on the Eighth Amendment, a big change moment in Ireland around greater respect for the human rights of women and girls and, and people who become pregnant. That was a big, big moment. And right now we're doing a lot of work on, on refugee rights. We've been, we've been working and advocating for the last year or more now for a new program of work called Community Sponsorship, which I'll explain it as, in as short a term as I can, would see communities come together to support the effective resettlement of a refugee or refugee family. So a newcomer or a newcomer family arrives in Ireland and rather than being met at the airport by immigration authorities and taken to a direct provision centre or an emergency reception centre, they're met at the airport by their new community and their new friends who take them to their new home that they've prepared for them, who then spend a year with them helping them to understand what it would be like to live in Ireland. You know, gets them registered with the GP, helps to get them their kids into school, helps them with English language training if that's what they need, helps them to navigate the you know state systems here. Is there, they're their friends, they become their best friends for a year and support their effective resettlement and integration into Ireland. And then there are the individual cases. You know, Ibrahim Alawa's return to Ireland was a huge moment for us. Uh, I mean, that young man should never have spent four years of his life in an Egyptian prison cell for nothing other than peacefully exercising his right to freedom of expression and freedom of association. That's the only reason he was in prison, was because he stood up after he saw two of his friends being killed in an onslaught against protesters after a military coup in Egypt. He stood up and went to a protest, to protest against that. That protest was brutally suppressed by the regime in Egypt. In, in one 24-hour period, in the period running up to Ibrahim's arrest, the Egyptian police and security forces killed more people, killed more protesters, than at any other time in recent human history, and that includes Tiananmen Square. That's the scale of the oppression that was happening in Egypt when Ibrahim was arrested. And he spent four years from the age of 17 to 21 in a prison cell in Egypt. And amnesty members around the world, in Ireland, and in many other places campaigned for his release. And to see Ibrahim come back uh, to Ireland was a huge moment. And he's somebody that we, we see on a regular basis. So that was another big moment. And thankfully, we get plenty of those. I mean, this works. We see people being freed and released. We're now about to head into a big campaign that we run every year called our Letter Writing Marathon. So around Christmas time at the end of every year, we take 12 cases globally and we ask Amnesty members and supporters around the world to take action on those cases. And we see every year uh, a significant number of those cases. We see big, big breakthroughs, legal change, people being released, people's lives being saved, massive, massive change. Um, so those are really proud moments when they happen. This week, I could be rightly criticised for an overly literal interpretation of the segment title because we will be joined on the phone by Beth Doherty, a TY student in, in Alexandra College who's involved with the Fridays for Future climate strikes. I started by asking Beth how she had become involved in student activism and was surprised to note 
how her experiences paralleled those of Colm O'Gorman. I stayed off of student activism for a while. I The first thing I did was really setting up an amnesty club in my school back in second year. And I ran that for two years. But getting involved with school strikes to features with my first major outside school activism and my first major activism movement where it's been like a large global network rather than just an in-school club. I then wanted to find out how she got involved in the Fridays for Future campaign and how Beth and her colleagues have been able to motivate other young people to get involved too. So I do this summer camp over the summer and it's a lot of very socially engaged young people and I do debating and MUN and things. And really it was a group of us who set it up and I got added in and we were working on it and we made links with Fridays for Future as well. And it was kind of just that gradual involvement through people I already knew. And then people I knew, getting other people knew involved, and it just kind of grew from there. For activism, I think social media has been the absolute greatest thing that we could have gotten. You know, um, when I talk to people, the first thing they know about Friday to Future School Strikes is the Instagram account or the Twitter or the YouTube. And I think that's just a great way to uh, get young people engaged, get them to know what's going on. And in terms of motivating them to go to the strikes through social media, I think our biggest message is always, this is going to affect you. You know, we've used it as this abstract, this is something concrete. It's going to affect you, it's going to affect your future, and if you don't get involved, you'll regret this in, in 20 years' time. Of course, activism isn't just about going out and getting involved and having fun, so I asked Beth how they're trying to translate the activism on the ground into tangible political results. I think the enthusiasm itself kind of drives political change in a way, if that makes sense. I think, you know, when you have those 1.6 million people on the streets, like, like last Friday, when you've that many young people demanding the change, of course, whoever manifestos where we want, you know, much more radical action, we want to increase targets and things. Even with the green wave, you see an election with a new climate emergency measures uh, bill or the declaration of climate emergency. I think all of that is driven from the enthusiasm and driven from the political push and the political pressure that we've been seeing from that amount of young people coming out onto the streets. So I think in a way, the enthusiasm, the motivation and the sheer numbers of young people is what's driving that concrete political change that we're looking for. On a final note, I wanted to ask Beth to reflect back on her own personal experience of being involved in this kind of activism. It's been, it's kind of been indescribable. Like, I don't think I can compare it to anything else I've done so far in my life. I think it's been seeing that many people out in the streets, especially marching teams, you know, seeing 10,000 young people on the streets was incredible. And seeing the changes in politics, every time you hear about kind of new political action being pushed through, you get this amazing feeling. And of course, there are the downsides, you know, when you feel really burnt out, you feel exhausted, you know, in the aftermath of strike, kind of feeling almost empty in a way. And of course, when you have to deal with the climate deniers, the people online, I think the best way to balance that is to look at all the positives, look at the amazing things, and just try not to exhaust yourself too much and know your own limits. So a huge thanks to Beth for taking the time to get involved in the podcast. And of course, if anybody listening wants to get involved in either the climate strikes or in setting up an amnesty club in their own school, I have all the relevant info and links available in the episode notes. With my own students, I often find myself saying, exciting isn't the same as important. I asked Colm how Amnesty navigates the new media landscape and how he feels that the media should challenge our own views. I think there's a really interesting conversation that has to be had now around media and how media operates. Because for, I suppose, a myriad of reasons, the, the, a model has developed within media where what they want is drama and sensation. So rather than this being about discourse and the examination of ideas and even debating and discussing you know, opposing views... It becomes about some kind of pantomime 
where they want two people to be knocking seven bells out of each other and shouting over each other and saying awful things to each other because that drives ratings. Well, it might drive ratings. It might produce clicks online. It might do all kinds of things, but it doesn't inform anything. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't move anything on. It doesn't develop uh, thinking or understanding. It's entirely destructive and it's dreadful. And, you know, we've seen that evolve and develop in recent years in particular across the world. I mean, you see the state of the media, for instance, very often now in the US uh, uh, um, and in, 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 in many other parts of the world. We're not immune to that here either. I mean, the Irish media are very, very comfortable with setting up a debate where they get two people to oppose, to, to adopt entirely opposing positions and then knock seven bells out of each other for 20 minutes and they feel they've done well because it'll get a lot of traction online. Is that the impact? Is that what media is meant to do? Surely media is meant to, you know, there should be analysis, there should be an uncovering, there should be an exposure, you know, an exposing of idea, of principle, of thought. That's media at its best. It's meant to inform our public discourse and too often it doesn't. So we increasingly have to find ways to cut through that. Now, that's a fairly you know, blanket damning of media. And of course, there are exceptional uh, uh, um, people working within media and great media organizations who do the opposite. But a lot of the time, you know, even brilliant people within media are having to cut through that model that's, that wants to see this highly adversarial, inflamed, uninformative, uninformed approach adopted that gets you nowhere. How does public discourse stay kind and respectful and decent and still be challenging and still expose ideas. The other thing, by the way, that I think we absolutely have to be able to talk about is prejudice. Like we've gotten to a point now in Ireland where, and it's true not just here, it's, it's, it's even truer in other parts of the world, where to talk about racism or homophobia or transphobia or xenophobia or Islamophobia or any of these things, to, to, to say to somebody, I think that's an Islamophobic statement or a homophobic statement or a xenophobic statement or a racist statement is suddenly something you're not allowed to say. So the victims of bigotry, it turns out, are now those of us who hold bigoted views, not those who are subjected to them. I remember Panty Bliss saying this after the, the back in 2015 around the whole RTE. There was a discussion around the use of the word homophobia on RTE and she went in a, in a neat Orwellian trick it turns out that the homophobes are now the ultimate victims of homophobia. I remember writing a piece in response to all of that and the headline I put on the piece, and thankfully the publication that, that, that ran it went with it. I went, I'm homophobic and so was my husband. You know, you don't grow up in a society yeah. without taking on board the prejudices and biases that exist at a cultural level. We grow up with the values that are manifest around us and we change those values by naming them, by, by, by analysing them, by challenging them, by arguing about them, by doing whatever we need to do. But how do you do any of that if you can't even say it? I've held homophobic views. I've held sexist views. I probably still do to some degree. We all do. I've certainly held views that I would describe as racist and homophobic and transphobic and biphobic and Islamophobic. Of course I have. Because I grew up in a very insular, closed Ireland that, that was a country that othered people who were in any way different and then treated them terribly. So we all grew up with these prejudices. And it's not a terrible thing to say to somebody that I think you hold a deeply prejudiced view that I don't understand and that I think we need to challenge. We have to have the courage to do that. Because Colin is exceptionally well-versed in human rights, I asked him to comment on one of our course's learning outcomes that asks us to consider whether or not human rights are a Western concept. Well, I think that, that the whole idea that values and commitments to concepts like human dignity or a Western concept, I think, is deeply troubling on many, many levels. What does that say about other cultures? 
Because when you unpick human rights values, what are, they what are they actually about? Well, they're about the rights that each of us are accorded by the simple fact of our humanity. And my humanity is the same as the humanity of any person from any other country on the planet, whatever the ethnicity or faith or cultural background of that individual. Um, all, I mean, Article 1 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, all human beings are born equal in dignity and in rights. That's a universal concept. And that's a concept that finds expression in, in most global cultures and most global, global faith systems. The, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted in 1948 as a response to the horrors of the Second World War. And it was adopted without a single dissenting voice at the United Nations. The United Nations, as you know, is a body that's made up of all of the nations of the world and all have influence within that institution. Now, I wouldn't for a moment argue that there isn't disproportionate power held, particularly at the level of the Security Council. But the UN system is a system that's made up of, of, of all of the nations of, of, of the earth, and all of those nations sign up to and agree to be bound by these treaties. They're not imposed on anybody. So if a country has adopted the Convention on Civil and Political Rights, it said, we agree with this treaty, we agree to be voluntarily legal, legally bound by it, and we accept these values as values that matter to us and to our culture and to our society. So, you know, there is a tendency to dismiss human rights as being, you know, Western constructs. I think one of the challenges is that how people interpret rights can be, can be a bit of a construct. So, for instance, from the 1960s on, in, in the Western world, there was a very heavy focus on civil and political rights, but very little on economic, social and cultural rights. You know, they were seen as lesser. So you had a right not to be stuck in prison, but you didn't have a right to be provided with education or health care or a house, you know, a roof over your head. But how are you free if you don't have access to education or health care or, you know, a minimum standard of living that means that you're not at risk of starvation on an ongoing basis? How is that, how is that freedom? So there was, a, there was a tendency in the 1960s and, and right up until, and still to some degree, amongst in the Western world in particular, to see human rights as rights about freedom, you know, so freedom to, freedom to exercise one's autonomy, freedom, you know, to be free from, you know, not to be locked up in prison, freedom to do. And actually human rights are also about freedom from, they're about freedom from deprivation, from starvation, from hunger, from lack of access to healthcare, uh, from homelessness, from a lack of shelter. Those rights very often are, interestingly, better understood and even better protected in the global south. So if you look at the Indian constitution, which actually modelled itself very closely on the Irish constitution, they've got really good economic, social and cultural rights provisions. So no part of the world has it right. No part of the world is in a position where it can preach to another. Because in most parts of the world, the interpretation of what human rights values are, it's interpreted through a particular lens. And in the West, it's interpreted through a lens of privilege, where most people don't consider or need to consider rights like like health and education as as or even most people are not facing starvation for instance so there's less of a focus on economic and social rights given the powers then that organizations like the un have i asked colm what he thought the benefits of working within the ngo sector as opposed to within governments themselves actually were so when you talk about either the Council of Europe or the UN or indeed the EU, you're talking about inter intergovernmental organizations, IGOs. These are, these are collections of states who've come together to organize in either 
in a, in a legal or political context. That's what the UN is. That's certainly what the Council of Europe is. It'll be treaty-based. And then, of course, the EU is treaty and, and, and has its own um, um, code of law as well, enforceable law. What an NGO is or what a civil society organization is is, a, is an organization of people who want to influence decision-making and who want to actively participate in decision-making. Um, and the human rights framework is very clear. We have a right to be part of the making of decisions and informing decision-making that dire directly affects our lives. And that's a big part of what Amnesty does. So we work within those systems, within the IGO systems, to advocate for change. We have offices you know, in Geneva, in New York, in Brussels, in Strasbourg, at The Hague. We have offices in these places where we engage with those institutions on a regular basis to challenge them to make sure that they operate in a way that's in compliance with international human rights law or regional human rights law or the human rights framework. That's a big part of what we do. That can, that can mean lobbying and, advocacy and advocacy and campaigning. It can also mean things like strategic litigation. On a regular basis, on a daily basis, be engaged with the treaty monitoring bodies of the United Nations, the bodies that are there to oversee the compliance of states with the various treaties. So Ireland will be examined on a periodic basis for its compliance with the big treaty, with any of the treaties that we're party to. But for instance, the, the, the Convention on Civil and Political Rights, the Human Rights Committee will measure compliance against that. When Ireland goes before that, before, before that committee, we will make submissions to that committee. They're called shadow reports to inform the committee about our view of Ireland's compliance with its human rights obligations. So we do that kind of work at the UN level as well. Human rights can obviously be very contentious. Not so very long ago, a past pupil of my own school, Lisa Hannigan, collaborated with Damien Rice to write a song called Unchained Piano about Aung San Suu Kyi, the Nobel Peace Prize winner. Recently, she was stripped of her title of Amnesty International's Ambassador of Conscience. I asked Colm to briefly talk us through the controversial decision to strip her of that title. Well, I mean, first of all, we don't afford rights to just people that we agree with, right? So, so if, you, if I don't believe that even my mortal enemy uh, uh, is deserving of having his rights protected, I don't believe in human rights. I mean, the best example I can give about, of that at the moment is, is in the case of President Erdogan in Turkey, who, whose government in the last two years has locked up my counterpart in Turkey. So the amnesty director in Turkey was arrested on, for no reason, it was entirely baseless, just for her human rights work, and spent nine months in prison. Our chair in Turkey spent over a year in prison. They're still going through the court process there as well. The, the head of the government that did that to them, President Erdogan, was in a much earlier life an amnesty prisoner of conscience because he was arrested for, for reciting a piece of poetry that, had, that was grounded in Islam and politics. And that was at a time when in Turkey there was a, a suppression of political expression that was tied to Islam in any way. And um, we stood up for his rights then. And it was the right thing for us to do because nobody should be put in prison for, for voicing a political, religious or any other belief. And we were right to do that. Um, and we would do it again. So, you know, we defend the rights of all, uh, even people who've done terrible things or people that we disagree with or people who would not defend the rights of others because human rights are universal. Now, Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, as, as listeners to the podcast will know, spent well over, she spent decades actually as a, under house arrest as a prisoner because she opposed the military junta that was ruling Burma, Myanmar uh, and had done so for, for, for decades. 
she was extraordinarily courageous and principled in her resistance of that and she she got huge global public uh, accolades for doing so she won the nobel peace prize she was given the freedom of cities all over the world and yes in 2009 she was awarded amnesty's ambassador of conscience award which is the highest award that we ever give to anybody and we were right to give it to her in 2009 because her actions in defending rights in standing up for freedom despite the cost to herself were laudable and needed to be credited she came here in 2003 after she was released and she was finally presented with the, with the award i met her when she was here it was a huge moment we had thousands of people thronged into uh, Grand Canal Square to see her speak to, to people there. We had this huge gala concert in the Borgash Theatre where she was finally presented with the award. It was a massive moment. Um, and, and thousands, tens of thousands of Irish people had campaigned for her freedom because she represented something. She represented a resistance to a regime that denied people their rights and their freedom. And she, she represented and demonstrated enormous courage in, in, in doing so. It has been a shocking betrayal to see how she's conducted herself uh, over the last couple of years, particularly in relation to the treatment of the Rohingya population, or Rohingya people in Myanmar, they live in mainly Rahim state in, in, in Myanmar and Burma. Um, that's even sadder when I think that when she was coming here, we uh, 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 made sure that she got to meet with, there were three different um, Burmese Myanmar communities of refugees who'd come here over the years, and one of them was actually a, a group, a Rohingya community who are based in Carlow. So we made sure that when she arrived in Ireland, she was met by delegations from the three different ethnic communities of Myanmar, Burmese people, here, including the Rohingya community. Um, yeah, so I keep thinking about that community now and what it's been like for them over the last couple of years to see their treatment continue because nothing has changed for them. They've been persecuted for decades in, in Myanmar. They're not allowed citizenship. They're stateless people, effectively. Their levels of violence and discrimination that they're subjected to are horrific. Since over the last couple of years, there's, there's been ethnic cleansing to push them out of Myanmar. Rape, murder, uh, um, the burning of villages, uh, pushing people over the border, the destroying of, of shops and businesses. I mean, entire Rohingya villages have been razed to the ground. 720,000 people, 80% of the Rohingya population of Rakhine province of, of Myanmar have fled over the border into Bangladesh and are living in refugee camps there. Aung San Suu Kyi did not speak out to condemn that violence. Now, she's not actually the prime minister of Myanmar. She's, she has a, a job called the, the, the state council or the chief council. When the generals changed the constitution and allowed an election to happen, they wrote a clause into the constitution that said you can't be prime minister if you've had children who've been born overseas. And that was deliberately put in there to make sure that she could never become prime minister. But she's de facto prime minister. Right? So she controls, she's the leader of the party that dominates the government. She controls the, the political process effectively as state council. She's the de facto leader of Myanmar. But the other thing about the, the Myanmar constitution is the government, the, the, the political government, so the elected government, have no authority over the military or police. So the military or police, the generals, are still autonomous uh, um, in, in how they carry out their activity. So it's an interesting one over the last year to look at. It is, it is uh, um, the generals who are committing these crimes against the Rohingya in Rakhine province. They are ordering and responsible 
uh, for this ethnic cleansing and for the crimes against humanity that flow from all of that. So it's not that Aung San Suu Kyi is giving the orders for this to happen. However, her silence has been fairly deafening. And worse than that, when she finally spoke about it, she spoke out more in support of the generals than in support of the Rohingya. So she talked about how, you know, um, people were burning their own villages and about false stories of rape. Despite all of the evidence that made it clear that this was happening on a grand scale, she sought to minimise it. We've also seen journalists arrested in Myanmar. Two, re- two Reuters journalists were arrested for reporting on the ethnic cleansing and sentenced to seven years in prison, using many of the same laws that the generals used to imprison Aung San Suu Kyi. And her response to that was to say that the law, the letter of the law had been followed in those cases. But the letter of the law had been followed in her case and she spent decades in, in, in prison as a result or in, in under house arrest as a result. So where it gets to is that Aung San Suu Kyi has betrayed absolutely the principles that she said she stood for. She's absolutely betrayed the efforts of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people around the world who stood for her human rights in the hope that that meant she would stand for the human rights of everybody who live within Myanmar, within her own country, and that we'd see real change there. So she's betrayed everybody. But the most shocking that she's done is she's betrayed the Rohingya community. So, of course, it wasn't appropriate for her to continue to have, you know, to be designated an ambassador of conscience for amnesty. But frankly, that's a minor thing. I'm, I'm not so hung up on whether somebody has, I don't know, you know, some sort of citation hanging over their fireplace. Uh, um, our concern over the last year has been to document, to detail, to reveal, to expose what's being done to the Rohingya people. Well, that's it. This episode ran way over length. All I'll do at the end here is to say that if you're enjoying the podcast, you can help support it by making a tiny donation on the contact and support page of the website, www.palsockpodcast.com. I'm desperate to make sure that the podcast and website remain free to anybody who can't afford grinds, but who wants to engage further. This is my own little piece of activism, and I'd appreciate your help. There's plenty for you all to mull over from Colm O'Gorman's fascinating insights. I hope you'll take the time to reflect on those big issues. But for now, I'll sign off in the usual way by reminding you that you're not apart from society. You're a part of society. See you next time.